people. So I pray that uh, as we study your word, that you would uh, take your word and Lord, that we would make not only looking at the implication, but make an application for our lives here today, especially in the season that we are in. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jeremiah has been given a message to the people that is a difficult message because they have forsaken the Lord. And the prophets had been coming on the scene even before Jeremiah. Isaiah had a ministry of 40 years where he was ministering um, the word of the Lord to the house of Israel that eventually would be taken off into captivity by the 10 northern tribes by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. And, and it was Isaiah that continued to give the warnings to Judah and saying to Judah that you need to turn back to the Lord as well. And ever since after the reign of David, it's quite interesting that it was David that brought the nation together. He was the greatest king that Israel had. He was a king that had a heart after God. And all the other kings of Judah were compared to David. Uh, and David, he uh, sinned. He made, um, you know, um, some very bad choices as we read about his life. But one thing that David never did is that he never bowed the knee to an idol. He, he was faithful to the Lord in that way. So he reigned for 40 years, and then Solomon reigned for 40 years. And of course, it was during the reign of Solomon that the temple was built, uh, the greatest peace and power and prosperity that the Israel ever had was experienced under Solomon's reign. And we also know that at, uh, at some point in Solomon's life, he began to introduce idol worship into the land. And it came by the foreign wives that he had married. And he built altars to their false gods. Uh, he began to, to do it himself, burn incense to those false gods, which really intrigues me because Solomon, who was known for his wisdom, um, known for having godly wisdom, didn't always exercise all of that in his life. He ended up multiplying wives, which he wasn't supposed to, according to the word, multiplying gold, which he wasn't supposed to, and multiplying horses, which Deuteronomy said the king was not to do that. So Solomon, as he would compromise, and he would begin to burn incense to those foreign gods um, as he uh, would uh, have that taken place, idol worship once again was coming back into the land and then the nation of course split the ten northern tribes the house of Israel under the reign of Rehoboam uh, Solomon's son and, and then they had 19 kings which were terrible kings and they were plunged deep into Baal worship and, and other idolatrous uh, worship and practices and then the house of Judah did a little bit better but when Manasseh comes on the scene and, and they had some terrible kings before Manasseh, like Ahaz that we read about in the book of Isaiah. Ahaz was a terrible king that plunged the nation deep into idol worship. Um, and we know that Manasseh, as here Jeremiah uh, in the previous chapter that we saw last week, that the, the sins of Manasseh are mentioned because Manasseh plunged the nation once again Deep in the idol worship, he reigned longer than any other king of Judah. Uh, 55 years, uh, they were uh, sacrificing their children in the arms of Moloch. Um, he had brought idols into the house of the Lord. We've seen the sins of Judah, God's people, that are listed here in Jeremiah. They were full of uh, idolatry, false worship. They were greedy. Uh, they were full of covetousness. Uh, they were out for themselves. There was the false prophets on the scene that were saying everything is going to be okay. Uh, everything's going to be good. Uh, don't listen to Jeremiah. Uh, there's going to be peace in the land. We know that they were uh, baking and, and burning incense to the queen of heaven and all this false stuff that was taking place. So Jeremiah is coming along and saying, listen, turn back to the Lord, and the Lord is saying, Jeremiah, that they're going to go off into captivity because they refuse to turn to me. And so as we look at this, it's, it's harsh words, difficult words, but the Lord is saying it with a broken heart. 
And it is Jeremiah that is known as the weeping prophet. It is weeping as he is giving these words to the people. And so let's begin to look at chapter 16, that the word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land. Verse 4, they shall shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like the refuge on the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpse shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So again, these are hard words to, to uh, read, and, and uh, the message to Jeremiah is don't get married, don't have children, because the Babylonian invasion is going to be so horrible, it's going to be very gruesome. There's going to be great death, destruction, and devastation, like never seen before. And it's better that you not get married, Jeremiah. But it is interesting that as you look at the Old Testament, you see that, for example, Ezekiel, uh, that we will go into that book next. And Ezekiel, he goes off into captivity in the second wave in 597 B.C. He's off into captivity. And Ezekiel, he's told in t chapter 24 of his book that, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. We know as we look at the prophets of the Old Testament that Hosea was told, he was told to take a wife, and that wife is going to be unfaithful. And so Hosea, as he did that, uh, the Lord was speaking in that, and he was showing Hosea and the nation that my people have committed adultery. They, they have left me. Uh, they committed spiritual adultery. And so Hosea went through that painful time with his wife. Uh, we know that uh, as you look at uh, Moses, we see Moses, his wife, uh, that story as Moses was told to go to Egypt, free my people. I'm going to use you, Moses, God said, to, to free the people from Egypt. And, and, and Moses, I've heard their cry. So Moses is on his way to Egypt, and all of a sudden, uh, God is about ready to strike Moses, and it is Moses' wife that takes his son and circumcises him and, and throws the foreskin at Moses and said, you're a bloody husband to me. And people ask me all the time, what was that all about? Well, Moses was going to shepherd the people of God. He was going to be a leader of three million people, and, and yet he had failed in ministering to his family and leading his family. And of course, that the covenant was given of circumcision, and Moses didn't do that. So his wife ended up having to do it. So there's all these lessons, and I just want to say this, that God speaks in families. He speaks to families, and he speaks through families. And I know that he's speaking to a lot of families right now. And, and perhaps you're there as you're listening to this saying, yeah, the Lord is showing us a lot of things. Maybe between husbands and wives. And maybe perhaps he's, he's ministering to you and showing you things that have been a tremendous blessing. That otherwise the, the distractions and all the routine was there. And, and, and now you're really hearing the voice of the Lord. That's my prayer for every family that is in this fellowship, that is listening, because the Lord does want to speak to you. He wants to speak to husbands and wives. He wants to speak to your children. And he wants to speak not only to you, but through you as you minister to others as well, that they may perhaps be able to sense that there is peace and that there is harmony and there is joy in your home because you know the Lord. So the Lord wants to speak to our families, and he's doing that. I've, I've talked to people even today that they, they have uh, said that this has been a time where really they've been consistent in reading the Bible to their children or to their grandchildren, ministering to them, you know, praying with them. And that's a good thing. And so I hope to uh, hear that you're continuing to do that. We all need to do that because families are so important. But Jeremiah, at this point, you're not going to get married. In verse 5, for thus says the Lord, do not 
enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Not only don't marry, but don't mourn for the people. Don't be lamenting. And again, it seems like difficult words that the Lord is telling to Jeremiah, but he's saying to them, don't be mourning because know this, that I am working. And as I think, consider this, I know for me that in this time, you see in chapters 14 and 15, there was drought in the land, wasn't there? Literally, there was a drought. The land was drying up. Uh, the vegetation was drying up. And the Lord was using that drought to try to draw the people back to him. But as we know that they refused to do that. And as there was drought in the land physically, there was drought, a severe drought spiritually in the land. And even though right now as we are going through a difficult time and all of us have been affected by this pandemic that uh, has been around now for going on two months and we continue uh, with the uncertainty and, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen and when, uh, you know, what the next restrictions are and all of this. But... I have been learning and I've been reminded and others who have shared with me and just reminded that I'm not to be lamenting because I know that God is working. And certainly we can get down and we can get discouraged. We go through seasons like that. Maybe we toss and turn and, and we doubt and, and all of this. But please, all of us need to remember that the Lord is working and he promises to work all things for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. You see, God doesn't say that I'm going to turn that which is bad into good, but he's saying in the bad, I'm going to work good somehow. Somehow I'm going to work in your life for good in eternity's perspective and, and views. And he is working in our lives. We may not understand it all. We may not uh, know exactly where all this is going and how it's going to turn out. But he is working for good because he loves us and we belong to him. And so we need to trust in that. And not only trust in that, but we need to rest in that as well. So Jeremiah, you're not going to be marrying. You're not to be mourning. And then in verse 6, both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Verse 8, also you shall not go to the house of the feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes, and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And so not only you are not to marry, you're not to mourn, but you're not to feast. Things were so chaotic that people were not able to, to comfort those who have lost loved ones, and especially during this time when Babylon was going to come. There will be no comforting. So Jeremiah, remove yourself from the normal aspects of life, the feast, the marriage feast, and it was a sign that the days ahead are going to not be festive. They're, they're going to be bad. And then in verse 10, and it shall be when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounce all this great disaster against us or what is our iniquity or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God then you shall say to them because your fathers have forsaken me says the Lord they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law and you have done worse than your fathers for behold each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, and where I will not show you favor. So, of course, it all goes back to the Mosaic Covenant that as Moses brought the children of Israel to the mountain of God, the Mount Sinai, they were a nation, and he gave them the law, and he made a covenant with them 
that if you follow after me and believe in me and obey me, then it's going to be well with you and your children, and I'll send the rains, and you'll have the crops, and I'll defeat the enemy, and it'll be good. And the nations will see that truly I am the Lord and seeing my power and how I'm working in you and through you. They're going to see the reality of, of the Lord, that, that your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is truly the Lord. But if you forsake me and go after those false gods and, and, and you don't walk after my ways, then it's going to be bad news. There's going to be infestations and there's going to be drought and eventually the enemy is going to come in and take you away captive. So this goes back to the Mosaic Covenant and they may be asking, why this great disaster against us? Because the Lord, not just for a short time, but for a long time has been telling the people to turn back to him. And you remember that earlier in the book of Jeremiah that it was the Lord that said the house of Judah that went into captivity after the house of Israel. You should have learned from your sister Israel. You saw what happened to them. And yet you are doing the same thing. You are ignoring the fact that I'm trying to get you to turn to me and, and to follow after me. Because those false gods are going to lead you into captivity. They are not going to help you. And of course, the false gods they were worshiping led to all kinds of perversity and immorality and sinful activity that was taking place in the land and they were not listening to the Lord. So the Lord said, Jeremiah, they're going to have to go off into captivity. It's the only way to save this nation for them to go off into captivity. And, and they would say, you know, why this iniquity? Or what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? They should have known. And once again, they're reminded of that Mosaic covenant in verse 11. Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They've walked us after other gods, have served them, worshipped them, forsaken me, not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. In other words, uh, in Isaiah's day, they were not turning to the Lord. In Manasseh's day, and here they were, they had done worse because they refused to turn back to the Lord, and each one followed the dictates of their evil heart so that no one listens to me. As, as I read this, and I, I look at the culture around us and in our own nation, and we have seen, haven't we, as believers, how far that our nation has gotten away from the Lord. And, and what I pray that during this pause and during this time, that there is truly a great awakening that happens in our nation. So we as Christians, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for the Lord to be touching hearts, for people to turn to the Lord. Uh, that's what my prayer is. But we have seen how we have become a nation that has become more ungodly over the years, and, and uh, it, it really, have, we've seen things, people following the dictates of their own evil hearts more and more over the years. And it concerns us, and it breaks our hearts when we see it, isn't it? So we need to continue to pray, and I pray that, um, that this nation would turn back to the Lord, and our leaders would turn back to the Lord. We need the Lord. And we as Christians, we need to be praying and continue to be a light and give a message of hope and a message of repentance that people need to repent and come to Jesus Christ uh, to be forgiven and to, uh, to receive him into their hearts to be born again. Um, and, and that really is the hope of our nation. And that is the hope of any nation. So they had forsaken the Lord. And, and here's the other thing, that they had followed the dictates of their own evil hearts in verse 12, so that no one listens to me. I pray that we never get to the point in our own lives that we don't listen to the Lord, that we're more concerned about following you know, the dictates of our hearts. And this is a time, again, for us to really allow our hearts to be in tune with the Lord and be soft before the Lord. And we're going to see that in the next chapter, he's going to talk about our hearts 
as uh, he will say that our hearts are desperately wicked and we need to allow the Lord to examine our hearts. But let's continue on in verse 14 as we read, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall be no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land and I gave which I gave to their fathers. So the Lord doesn't leave them without any hope. And he always gave hope, saying, listen, I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to restore you. That's going to take place. Um, not only is it said of Egypt that you came out of that slavery, but also out of you know this Babylonian captivity as well. And I'm going to give you the land which I gave to their fathers. And behold, I will send for many, verse 16, fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And, and first, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. So again, the Babylonians, they're going to be like hunters. They're going to be like fishermen and catch people and, and hunting people down. And nothing that we do, as the Lord reminds us, is hidden from him. He sees everything. We can't hide our hearts from the Lord. He says, they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And that's the thing that we need to remember. That's part of living in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is having a reverence for the Lord because the Lord sees everything. And Lord, you know my heart. You know the depths of my heart. I can't hide anything from you. You see it. And Lord, I need to understand that. And I want to be one that pleases you with my life and with my thoughts and, and not thinking that I can get away with anything. Remember that Paul that in Galatians chapter 6, when he's writing to the churches of Galatia, he gave a very important spiritual law. And he said, do not be deceived and God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. And we know this spiritual law, a lot of us. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So it's true. It's a spiritual law that none of us are exempt from. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. He sees. He knows everything. We can't hide anything from him. You might be able to hide it from other people, your family. Um, you might be able to hide it from people at work, your neighbors or whatever. But you can never hide anything from the Lord. And whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So if we are sowing unto the flesh, of the flesh we're going to reap corruption. In other words, what we do today, there's going to be a crop that's going to come up tomorrow. And if we sow to the Spirit, here's the good news. Walking in the Spirit. Just relying on the Spirit of God to direct us and guide us and live a life after the Lord and pleasing to Him. That you will, of the Spirit, reap to everlasting life. Good things are going to happen to you and to me spiritually. And we're going to be refreshed and renewed. And we're going to be strong in the Lord. So that's my prayer, is that we would just allow the Lord to just minister to our hearts, knowing that, Lord, I know that nothing is hidden from you. And, Lord, I need to come to you in, in full honesty because you love me. And for you to deal and help me to sow unto uh, the Spirit that I may reap unto everlasting life. But let's continue in verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. And that's true for us. He's our strength. He's our fortress. He's our refuge in a day of affliction. And what we're going through right now, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? 
And therefore, behold, I will uh, this once cause them to know. Verse 21, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So speaking of an incredible prophecy where the Gentiles are going to come to know the Lord. And we know that the church, um, that this has happened as uh, salvation has come to the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, and, and it will uh, continue to till the Lord comes back. And in the millennium reign, of course, it will be that time when we will all say, that you are the Lord and worship him and righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. So some uh, here see this as speaking of the church age. Some see this as the millennium age. But we do know that the promise is given that light would come to the Gentiles, even as Isaiah prophesied that. But as we move into chapter 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. And with the point of a diamond, uh, it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Oh, my mountain in the field, verse 3, I will give us plunder your wealth and your treasure and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in a land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. So the people had sinned against the Lord, and here we see that the Lord wanted to engrave his word on their hearts, um, but we see that their sin was engraved on their hearts. Uh, he, he talks about here engraved with the hot iron. He talks about engraved with the diamond. That's the hardest substance that there is. And, and sin had permeated their hearts, their lives, their families, and their children. And on the high hills they worshipped and the altars dedicated to, to Baal and Astaroth. And they had this Astra poles that would be set up and Manasseh uh, would put an image of their goddess of fertility in the temple and it ended up being removed in Josiah's reign but evidently it would come back after the death of Josiah. In other words that even though Josiah had brought reforms to the land it really wasn't true revival in the hearts of the people. They were just going along with it. And as soon as Josiah, that godly king, died, that the people went right back into idol worship, that, that they were so engraved in sin during the days of Manasseh, it never really left their hearts. So here he's saying, I, I wanted to engrave my word on your heart and my love on your heart. In Isaiah, he said, you who belong to me, you're engraved on my hand. That's the good news for you and for me. But here we see that sin was engraved on their hearts. And in verse 5, thus says the Lord curses the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inherit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. So as we read this, they were depending and, and, and trusting in man. They were actually trusting in, in their false leaders and the false prophets and all of that. They were trusting in their political allies. We know that, that they would uh, try to align themselves with Egypt. Let's go to Egypt and they'll help us from the Assyrians is what we read in the book of Isaiah. And the Lord came to his people and said, Woe to the rebellious children of Israel, for you seek counsel, but not of me. You're going to Egypt and you're going to find that Pharaoh is not going to help you, that those fast Arabian horses are not going to help you. But come to me is what the call is as you read Isaiah chapter 30. That you're to come to me, you're to wait on me, and then you're going to hear from me. So a very important lesson that we see there in Isaiah chapter 30. But they would turn to Egypt. They would turn to the Ethiopians. They would turn to even Assyria at times. At the end of this time, hoping someone's going to save us from the Babylonians. And they would turn to their gods. And there's not one example that we see in the Old Testament of those false gods and those alliances helping the children of Israel. 
All they had to do is turn to the Lord. So they were putting their trust in men. They were putting their trust in that which is false. You know, there are many false gods that we can turn to in our world today. And whatever has priority over our trust in the Lord and loving him and worshiping him ends up becoming an idol in our lives. And those idols can be possessions and money and and success and fame and power. Uh, Anything that we love and trust more than Jesus, it ends up becoming an idol that is set up in our hearts. So we are to make sure that he's the priority. We can turn to man's philosophy in worldly ways. And Paul would write to the church of Colossae in chapter 2, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, listen, don't be cheated. We trust in that person. We trust in this group and this movement We have seen in our culture today, movements are a a big thing. And join our movement, and it will all leave you disappointed. Now, I'm not saying that people can't help us in practical ways. I I understand that, that, that there are those who can help us. But trusting ultimately is trusting in the Lord is what we are to do. Because people will let us down and and. Governments will let us down and politicians will let us down and all that. But the Lord will never let us down. And we are to trust him and we are to filter everything through his word because his word is true. You see, the philosophies and the you know, latest trends of culture and thought and, and political ideas, that changes constantly. But the Lord's word is true and it is constant. Jesus is the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. And the grass will fade and the flowers will wither away. But the word of the Lord will never fade away. It will last forever. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. And we can trust him and look to him and filter our lives in every area of our lives through him and the word of God. That's why it's so important, especially right now, because there are so many voices that are out there. And it gets discouraging, doesn't it? And it gets confusing, doesn't it? And it becomes where we're not sure, is this true? Is, is that true? Is what they're saying, is that correct? But we do know this, that this is true. From Genesis to Revelation, it is absolute truth. The inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God given to us. And I am so grateful for it. Because I know that the answers are there for me in my life. In every area of my life. How to be the father that he wants me to be right now. The man of God he wants me to be how to be the husband he wants me to be, the pastor that he's still calling me to be, how I can have joy in my heart and hope and and strength. He's my stability. He is my, you know, certainty. He is my hope. He's my provider. He's everything that I need, and he's everything that you need. So may we trust in him and look to him and know that, that he is true and his word is true. And so as we look at this, we continue to see that in verse 7, and I think verse 7 and 8 is really for us today, is blesses the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spread out its roots by the river and will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So here, those who trust in man, verse 5, verse 6 said, they're going to be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes and shall inhabit the parched places of the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Salt land is nothing can grow. That is what happens when we trust in man, when we trust in that which is contrary to the Lord. It's like a shrub in the desert. 
It's like, you know, you don't know when good comes or see it and, and parch. And our souls feel that way. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. He is our hope. And it reminds me so much of what Psalm 1 declares to you and to me, that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And, and what brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. So we are to plant ourselves in the Lord as we're trusting in him, knowing that he is our hope. We'll, we'll be like that tree planted by the waters. And especially in this part of the country, as we go out, for example, out east in the plains, and, and it's you know open space, but you have these rivers and you have stream beds and, and uh, creek beds, and the trees will be planted there, and they're established there. All the vegetation around can be dry and the dry grass, but that tree is there and it is there established and its roots are down into where that moisture is, down where that stream bed is. And, you know, that, that tree is there established even when it becomes hot. The rest of the grass and everything else around will begin to wither away. And here he says, you'll be like that tree you know, plant it by the waters and spreads out its roots by the river, being refreshed and will not fear when heat comes. And we're feeling the heat right now, aren't we? But the Lord says, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be like the leaf that is green because you've gotten your roots into the Lord and to the word of the Lord, the water of the word. And you're not going to be anxious in the year of drought. So can I ask you a question tonight? And it's a question not only for you, but it's a question for me as well. Are we feeling anxious? And we can have those moments where we do feel anxious because we're going through drought, because we're going through a season of difficulty. And some of you are going through really tough, challenging, difficult times right now. And the Lord is saying, trust in me. And get the, your heart, the, the root, the word, to take root in your heart. The water of the word. And you'll be strengthened and you'll be established. And you're going to bear fruit. You won't cease from yielding fruit. And that's a word for all of us. And then in verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So here Jeremiah is really getting to the root issue here, and that was their hearts. And the Lord always gets to the root issue. Now when we continue through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see it in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is really going to get to the root issue, to our hearts, the attitude of our hearts. And we'll get into that in the Sermon on the Mount. But here he says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Only the Lord knows it because he's the one that searches the heart. And, you know, man comes along and says, well, there's good in everyone. That our hearts are good. And the Bible comes along and says, no, our hearts are deceitful. That we are sinners. And that's why we're in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to be born again. David would pray in Psalm 139, Lord, search me and try me, O Lord. We know that it was Paul that would say to the Corinthian church that examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, said the Lord is the one that really knows the hearts. So as I said earlier, as we were reading in the previous chapter, their hearts, that their sins were engraved as we began chapter 17 in chapter 16. Their hearts were far from the Lord. And he's saying, I see everything. You can't hide anything. From me, So it's really important for we as Christians to allow the Lord to search and try our hearts. The Lord, to humble our hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. Change my heart. Lord, strengthen my heart. Lord, speak to my heart. And, and it's a heart issue. And Lord, help me to bring up those things that need to be confessed and to repent of it. 
Lord, are there things on the walls of my heart? Because you dwell in my heart is what the New Testament says. Are there things on the walls of my heart that would grieve you? Lord, I want to. You know, it's interesting that it was Paul writing to Timothy, writing to Timothy about having a good conscience and a sincere faith and a pure heart. You know, later in Jeremiah, is going to talk about having a pure heart. And, and I want to have that pure heart, but I know that there are things that come into my heart that are displeasing to the Lord. And I want to be sensitive to that. Lord, I don't want to be led by the dictates of my flesh or to allow those things that come into my heart that end up captivating my heart in things that are not pleasing to you. And that's why it's so important, again, for us to humble ourselves and say, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. And then in verse 11, as the par uh, partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by right. I will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. So Jeremiah is speaking to those who amass wealth by unjust means. We have seen the sins of, of Judah that are listed here, that it was covetousness and greediness, and they weren't helping people out. They were just out for themselves and being dishonest. And Jeremiah speaking against those who says that I will leave him in the midst of his days, that they, his end will be a fool, and a glorious high throne from the beginning, verse 12, in the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. I think verses 12 and 13 are actually amazing verses that are written here because here he's talking about in the place of our sanctuary, the Lord, the hope of Israel. That's actually a title of God that is used by Jeremiah. He is the hope of Israel. He's the hope of, of the world. He's our hope. But he's the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Interesting, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. This reminds me, I believe, that, that verse uh, 13 is fulfilled in John's gospel. And what I mean by that, that it was in John chapter 7 that Jesus stood up on the last day of the great feast and he cried out to the people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of his innermost will flow torrents of living water. And you see, that was during the Feast of Tabernacle where they com commemorated how God brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. And you recall that in the wilderness wondering that they received water from the rock. And what would happen during the Feast of Tabernacle at that time, um, that they, the priests would have this procession from the temple mount area where all the people gather. It's like a big camp out. People in their, their lean-tos and their tents, little tabernacles that they made. It was called the Feast of Booths. And they would sleep under the stars and they would tell their children how the Lord brought them through the wilderness. And the priests would have this, during the feast, procession that would go down to the pool of Siloam and, and then come back and they would pour the water out on the pavement in these jars. But on the last day of the feast, when they went down to the pool, they would come back and their jars were empty. They would pour it, but there was no water that would come out of the jars. And it symbolized how the Lord brought them out of the wilderness no more water that came from that rock. And it was at that time when they're pouring the water and there's this pause and nothing's coming out that Jesus stands up and he says, if any of you thirst, come to me and drink. And out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. And of course, he would speak in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman that he said that I have living water to give to you. If you drink of the water of the world, you'll thirst again. We're familiar with that story, aren't we? Well, the next day in John chapter 8, that we see that Jesus is there 
He's teaching at the temple, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, bring this woman caught in the very act of adultery, and they throw her down in front of Jesus and said, the law says she's to be stoned. We caught her in the very act of adultery. What do you say, teacher? And Jesus, first, he acted like he ignored them, and they kept pressing him. What do you say? The law of Moses says she was caught in the very act. She should be stoned. What sayest thou, teacher? And, and finally, Jesus, he, he wrote on the ground, And as he's writing, it's the only time that we see in the Gospels of Jesus writing. He stooped down, he wrote on the ground, and then he got up and he said, he was without sin, you cast the first stone. And whatever it is that he wrote hit him like a bolt of lightning. I... There's been endless speculation. We don't know what he wrote because John doesn't tell us. I I wish he would have, but that's one of the questions I have when I go to heaven. What was it that Jesus wrote on the ground in John chapter 8? Three times we see the finger of God writing. In the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments, we have that before us. In Daniel chapter 5, after this time of Jeremiah, that we see that the Lord, the finger of God, wrote behind Belshazzar, the king, mini, mini, tekel, Pharson. We see that, but what Jesus wrote, the finger of God, writing on the ground, whatever it was, hit him like a bolt of lightning, and they dropped their rocks, and, and they all laughed. And of course, Jesus then will look into the eyes of that woman and says, who condemns you? No one does. He says, neither do I go in peace. And as I think about that, I think here a fulfillment of of Jeremiah 13, what he wrote maybe was one of the Pharisees' name and a female name next to it. I don't know. But they laughed. And it reminds me, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth as Jesus wrote on the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. As he stood up and said, come to me and drink of the living waters. It's amazing that Jeremiah wrote about that time. It would be, you know, uh, over 600 years before Jesus came on the scene. But in verse 14, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follow you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. Jeremiah is beginning to be persecuted. We're going to see that persecution continues to increase, and he's asking for God's help. He's saying, listen, I haven't turned away from being a shepherd who follows you. I've kept giving you and the people the word that is out of my lips. I have been faithful to the ministry that you've given to me, Lord. So help me. You are my hope in the day of doom. And Lord, I need you, and it is true for us. Listen. Keep giving the word. Keep giving the word of hope to your family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Keep giving it. And there may be those who give you a hard time for it. But don't stop being a shepherd because really, in a sense, you are a shepherd. Just like I'm a shepherd of this church, but you're a shepherd. You're a shepherd in your neighborhood. You're a shepherd to family members. You're a shepherd to those at work. Keep giving them the word of the Lord and the hope of Jesus Christ. And I know that the Lord will strengthen you and he will help you during this time to be a voice of truth and given a message of Jesus Christ, who is our hope and their hope as well. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you that we've spent this time in your word. And, and Lord, that... These are very dire days that we live in, but Lord, they're not hopeless days. And I pray that right now that we would know that you are working, even in a time where we feel anxious, in a times where perhaps we 
uh, are just overwhelmed with uh, maybe uncertainty or fear or just sadness, Lord, you are working. And we put our trust in you. And as we establish ourselves in you, that you are the one, you are the one that establishes us and refreshes us. We're like the tree that's planted by the riverbed. And everything else may be dry all around us, but our leaves will be green. Our hearts will be ones that continue as we are watered with the, the word of God, the water of the word, that we will be strengthened. And Lord, to remember that you're our hope, to remember that you have a wonderful plan and your promises are true for us, Lord. Oh, help us be reminded of that. And Lord, I pray that during this time where we are allowing you to minister to our hearts, that truly our hearts would be presented before you. Lord, that our hearts would, would, Lord, not be hidden from you because you see our hearts. And that we would allow you, as we humble ourselves, to search us and try us, even as David wrote. Because you desire for us to draw closer to you, to purge out those things that are unlike you by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, I, I pray that we would be a light and a message to others, even though others may not not always be nice to us or they come down on us or receive us. But Lord, that we would keep doing it and praying for people and for our nation to turn to you. Lord, that we would be a light. Our families would be a light. So Lord, we need you in these days more than ever to encourage us, to strengthen us, Lord, to give us peace and comfort that only you can truly give because we trust in you and to give you all of our hearts, all of our hearts. I pray for anybody here tonight that maybe there's somebody you're listening that you've never really committed your life to Jesus Christ. He is your hope. He is the only hope that there is for any man or any woman. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for you on that cross and died for your sins. And then he rose again from the grave and he's alive and he loves you. That's why he went to the cross. He provided a way for you to be forgiven and have the hope of heaven and right relationship with the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is your salvation. There is none other. And you come in faith. And as the invitation is given to come and believe in him, you shall be saved. To recognize that you're a sinner in need of the Savior, to be forgiven. And it only comes through faith in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and believing that he's alive. He rose from the grave. He validated what he did on the cross by rising from the grave. That is the good news, the gospel. And as you turn to him and call out to him, he will hear your prayer. You can pray right now that Jesus, I come to you and ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and I ask that you forgive me and that you're alive speaking to my heart and I give you my heart for you to sit upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me. I thank you for loving me for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. I thank you for your word and for all of us that we would continue to grow in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would perceive your presence in these days. And Lord, I thank you that we can be here tonight. We look forward to when we gather again on Sunday, but in the meantime, provide for your people, encourage us, Bless us during this season. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, hope we can see you.